Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, we have a returning guest. William Kelly is back to discuss the past, present, and future of Burgundy. As the reviewer for Burgundy Champagne English Sparkling Wine, and Madeira for The Wine Advocate, William has a unique perspective into this region. To learn more about William's background, listen to episode 62 of X Chateau, The Evolution of the Wine Critic, for more details. William, welcome back. Thank you for joining Peter and I. Hey, thanks for tolerating my return. <laughs> it's nice to be back. It's fun. Yeah, you know, we really wanted to dive into Burgundy. There's so much going in there. And obviously, you being boots on the ground there have a lot of in-depth perspective. Burgundy's always positioned itself as a land of farmers, you know, vignerons versus the aristocrats of the Chateau of Bordeaux. Why did this distinction establish itself and why has it been perpetuated for so long? Well, it's an interesting question. I think you have to take a step back and say, ultimately, it's an illusion uh, to an extent, because historically, obviously, Burgundy was owned, the top sites in Burgundy were owned by the nobility and the church. Romani Conti was a monopo of the Prince de Conti, who was the brother of the king and so on. And today, that's not even so different. You know, I mean, Cheval Blanc is owned by LVMH, and so is Claude Lombre. Axa own Claude Arlot, and they also own Pichon Baron, and so on. You know, one can, one can enumerate examples ad infinitum. And behind the scenes in Burgundy, there are a lot of investors, a lot of very rich, wealthy people who own important vineyards that are then leased in Fermage or Metoyage to mains that we know. And so, it's, so there's a lot more sort of, you know, big money in Burgundy under the radar than one might imagine. However, equally, then I think it's also important to say that in, in Bordeaux, beyond the world of the Medoc crew classé, we're looking at farmers, farming winemakers who are relatively modest in, in their scale and their means. However, obviously, the stereotype is not, doesn't come out of nothing. And, and all this really goes back to, I think, the revolutionary land reforms of 1792, when these big monopole of the church and the nobility were broken up. And then over the centuries, with partitive inheritance and land that wasn't particularly valuable, there was no incentive to reassemble it. I think we'll get onto that later when we start talking about the future of Burgundy, the present and the future of Burgundy. What happened is this sort of morselation of parcels. And I think it's one of the things that makes Burgundy so interesting today because, you know, we assume that all of the interest and all the complexity derives from the geology. And yes, it is very complex. And there are all these shadings, these changes in strata and facies and exposition and air drainage and all of that, which result in the wines being produced from those vineyards being immensely patterned and complex by the environment that they're produced Yes, but equally, if it were not divided into so many small pieces, that would absolutely not be the case, you know. And if you look at something like Beaujolais, how much more complex and interesting does Beaujolais become? I mean, we always criticize the fact that it's made by so many people and some of them are not good and some are better. But the whole interest of Burgundy is also that not only is the geographical, geological nuance thrown into relief, but so is the human element. I think that's something we don't talk about enough. We talk far too much about limestone and clay at the expense of the people behind it. And what the morselation of Burgundy really has done is so in fact at the same time as being the ultimate exemplar of the whole notion of terroir and that wine is being defined by the site that produces them it's also a region that tests those things because when you have two azures from adjacent parcels made by different people pick the same day, same vine genetics, and they taste different. Well, then that's a human element, isn't it? So, you know, it's both the proposition and the, you know, uh, mise en question of the concept of terroirs. That, I think, is what I find so fascinating about it. And probing those sort of tensions is one of the things that really interests me professionally. 
But in terms of the vigneron mindset versus the large chateau mindset, do you think that the metiage system really helped perpetuate that? And I was wondering if you could maybe give a little context to what that system means for people who may not know that term. Sure. I mean, I think, you know, what you had in Burgundy happening over the years were vineyards being split in two every generation because of part of inheritance. And you would have situations where people still own the vineyards and lived elsewhere, or you had rich people from outside whose family owned vineyards and they would. This is actually a system that I think, certainly if you look back in the 19th century history books, has its origins more in the Beaujolais and a little bit further to the south. It was not such a big thing in the 19th century in the Côte d'Or, Métayage. It was really, it was a Beaujolais system. But it migrated up north whereby you'd have people taking half of the fruit. I mean, it's sharecropping, you know, which has very pejorative connotations in Anglo-Saxon economies. But when the agricultural profit is so high, it can in fact sustain people farming subsistence farming in a sense, but a very high quality of life, which is what you see today increasingly. So it's an interesting system. But I think it's interesting. I mean, what you now have happening is the land values rocket. When you have both part, you have part of inheritance, every child gets an equal share. Then you have very high death duties, which have to be paid. And the death duties are assessed based on the price of the land, which is incredibly valuable, and people don't have the resources to pay it. So in fact, now you have an incentive to sell your land rather than to just break it up. And in fact, you sell it all to one guy who buys it all because he's mega wealthy, and so you're having a consolidation going on today. So these forces, which were centrifugal, have become centripetal, and in fact, consolidation is taking place, and you're going to see, I think, what we're in the process of witnessing, the reversal of the French Revolution's land reforms of 1792. Now, people lament this because they've grown up knowing Burgundy as it was, but really in a deeper context, it's simply returned to the way things were. And in the place of the nobility, you have the mega rich. And in the place of the church, you have similarly atemporal institutions that don't have to pay death duties, which is to say big French insurance companies and big business. So even with its super long history and legacy, it's really been over the last 20 years or so that Burgundy has kind of rocketed to become one of the premier collectible wines on the planet really surpassing Bordeaux in a lot of ways in terms of auction pricing and demand. What do you think is driving this? Yeah, that's also a fascinating question. And I mean, I've definitely benefited from it because, <laughs> you know, my interest in writing about Burgundy has coincided with the wine's explosion, which obviously makes what I do a little bit more relevant than it, what it might have been 20, 30 years ago. I mean, I think one obvious answer is that the wines are very good. They've perhaps in some respects never been better, although, I mean, you can look back at periods like the 1920s, 30s, when the wines are extremely good, and they're still extremely good today. But they are very good. And they also go with a lot of things, you know, and if you want to drink Northern Medoc, and I love drinking Northern Medoc, I mean, ultimately, I'm an Englishman, and that's what I my palate was formed with that. You can take me out of England, but you can't take England out of me. And I, I love, love nothing better than drinking 40-year-old meadow and a rack of lamb. But, you know, there are a lot of things that particularly left bank Bordeaux doesn't really pair well with. It's not very gastronomically versatile. They're not wines you can sit without food, even. And the attempts to polish them up into wines that you can do those things with have just made them taste more like super Tuscans. <laughs> and so sort of a face, they lost a bit. I think they, it could be said that in the quest to improve the product and to make wines also more broadly accessible, they lost a little of their identity, would be, I think, the circumspect way of putting it. And I'm not a Bordeaux basher. I've plenty of Bordeaux in my cellar, maybe 20% of my cellar or so, so not a criticism. But you know, and that's the main, Bordeaux remains, I think, the main contender is a rival for the world's leading wine region. And a totally different vision of wine as well. And what the other, you know, which comes to the second point I would make, we've accepted and the Baudelaire accepted and the New World accepted the concept of terroir. 
And we all embraced this. And we, I think the new world, suddenly, you know, you had people talking about variety and now they talk about the sort of exposition of their Goldridge, Loam, Ridge and everything. But if you accept that, just the be all and end all is Burgundy. So, you know, the premise of our wine culture has become terroir and terroir leads you to Burgundy in the summum of all terroir, Montrachet and Romanet Conti and Musigny. So once you accept those premises, well, inevitably, all roads lead to Burgundy. So, I mean, it's a remarkable it's a remarkable cultural shift because 30 years ago, 40 years ago, if you look at the old books, you could people wrote books about wine without mentioning the word terroir. So that's been an amazing shift and it's something we take for granted rather because it's, it's a premise of all of our discussions about wine today. It really wasn't not that long ago. So I think that's also critical. Third point, if I may, well, just quickly, is to say that Burgundy is also a social signifier and it's an aspect of wine that to some extent I deplore or whatever. I mean, it is what it is. And it's always been like that. It would be, it would be um, illusory to imagine it were. But, you know, I, you can master the 1855 classification and you can feel very smug. And then some guy comes along and says, oh, but you don't know, you know, which vintage of which produces Latricier Chambertin is the best, do you? And you're drinking claret, you know. So there's an element of, it's a one up, there's an element of one upmanship, which I think has made Burgundy by being so complex, so difficult to master and then so difficult to acquire the wines mm. is also the summum of cultural signifiers, you know, as far as wine's concerned. So that is what it is, you know, and it's, uh, we can't escape it. I want to go back to the gastronomic side. So, I mean, obviously you mentioned that Burgundy seems to go a lot better with food. A wider variety of foods anyway. Um, but it's also, in terms of drinking window, it seems to be a lot broader than classic class growth chateau, which you have to wait 20, 30 years to enjoy them at peak. Do you think that that has helped Burgundy rise as well? That it has a much wider drinking window. You can drink it young or old. Yeah. And then we've had these riper vintages in the 2000s, since the 2000s, where, because Burgundy is historically been very low pH wine. And if it's then has a bit of extract, a bit of tannin, it could be, you know, you remember tasting 08 Burgundy, red Burgundies on release. That's not approachable. <laughs> That's not approachable at all. And those are pretty strong for Pinot. Yeah, you know, you got to, to make an appointment with your dentist uh, in <laughs> advance before you're going to drink the wines. So that, and we don't really have that anymore. And the wines, instead of coming in at pH 3.1, are coming in three at pH 3.4 or whatever, with a lot more just phenolic maturity too. And so the wines are a lot more friendly. I think that's also true in Bordeaux, but maybe they play that card a bit too hard and they could have harvested October 5th and it would have been great, but they thought, well, we can wait till October 15th and then run it through the osmosa and so on. And they maybe made the wines so approachable that they became fatiguing to drink, you could say. So you mentioned scarcity a little bit as part of the reason why Burgundy is, is a little more interesting than Bordeaux, no. or one-upsmanship over Bordeaux. And Burgundy is only a quarter of the size of Bordeaux in terms of total production, with, I'd say, no. with a greater percentage being higher luxury wines or over $100 wines. Is this lack of supply a big driver of Burgundy's popularity amongst the elite collectors? Yeah, and I, I mean, I think, again, you have to go back and maybe crunch the numbers a little differently in the sense that Bordeaux's production is vast and a very small percentage of it is crew classe, just as a very small percentage of Burgundy is Grand Cru. But clearly, this is in many ways also an artifact of the, the terroir hierarchy that we've touched on, and that if you say that only 1% of your land is Grand Cru, then that's what everyone's going to chase. And so prices go crazy. You know, imagine if Rumier made two wines, a first wine and the second wine. If you were, if you were a Bordeaux Chateau, that's what you'd do. And there'd be a lot more first wine Rumier if you blended the Messigny and the Bonmar and the Amoureuse and the Crab, which would be a very good wine. Huh? 
I don't think anyone would have any problems drinking it, a bottle or two of that. So I think there's this, yeah, the hierarchy is played into it. And, it, and then on top of that, the morselation. And so you're talking about such small producers producing so little of, of the very recognizable, visible, the very visible wines that inevitably it goes crazy. And then it only takes three or four people to sort of decide that they want to have all of it. You know, and you've seen this happen with things like you're seeing it happen at the moment with Dauvinet and uh, Biza in China, especially. There are people who just, they want to have all of it. And if there's a Dauvinet offer, and it's gone in five minutes. You know, that's how it's going. And uh, Dauvinet Alaglite, I don't know if you track these things, but it's now up to two and a half thousand euros a bottle. It was about 1,200 a year ago. So, you know, and I remember as a student buying it for 90 UK pounds and thinking, shit, this is expensive. I apologize. I, I'm going to get the adult uh, <laughs> warning now. This, this is now a competition between your various invitees, but you can edit that out. But that was my, you know, my reaction was one of consternation when I have followed the price of that wine. But, that, but that's not going to start. But we were getting ahead of ourselves, perhaps talking about some of those subjects. Yeah, well, related to that, is part of the rise in Burgundy pricing, spillover perhaps from class growth becoming so expensive originally? Yeah, I mean, I think the Baudelaire overplayed their hand, with, especially with the 2010 futures campaign, and then the recession hit, and wow, it was just very bad timing. And then the Chinese decided, having had enough 2009s, why did they need 2010s at twice the price, which weren't necessarily better? And that, you know, that when the Baudelaire took also, it has to be said, Baudelaire took the Chinese for fools something the Chinese were well aware of being very intelligent and won't forgive rapidly. And so suddenly a whole new emerging market that had been practically monopolized by Bordeaux turned its attention to other wine regions. And then people, I guess, figured out, well, maybe it's more sophisticated to drink Burgundy anyway. And that was that. I don't know that you've seen, I don't know that I've been, I don't know that I've run into that many people who were already well-established Porto lovers who've sort of transitioned to Burgundy particularly. I don't know about you. I mean, I don't, in the US, I you know, meet wine collectors and whatever, and it seems like people who are sort of stuck in their Bordeaux grind are pretty faithful to that. There are some people who drink both, and there are some people, who, many people who just drink Burgundy, but I haven't seen that dimension. So I think a lot of this is really to do with Bordeaux mismanaging an emerging market. When you get to the point where you're like, I want to collect something that's unique and special and there's only so many of it, like a lot of those collectors who maybe already have all the first growths and are aging them, like it seems like an addiction. Like you almost, you want to go and explore these areas because you want to check it out and it's hard to get. Yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, and I think Bordeaux can, can to some extent satisfy them and you can chase older wines or whatever. I mean, I just, I'm going in the inverse route. I just bought some Chateau Le Fleur, so I'm, <laughs> I'm buying sm small production Bordeaux instead of Burgundy at the moment. You know, you can find whatever and whatever you want to pursue, you can find highly collectible wines. I know I really think it was that and it's, I mean, and, and the funny thing is that it had happened before. If you look at the history of Hennessy and Cognac in China and how they did pretty much the same thing with Cognac and destroyed the market. Well, there's still a lot of Cognac drunk in China, but it's a prestige good, you know. So it's a pity that no one, you know, well, for all the guys who go to business schools and study these matters, it's a pity no one had done a case study to look into that. And uh, in Bordeaux had said maybe we should cool off with the 2010s and, you know. So jumping forward to present day, obviously we're talking about burgundy prices at an all-time high. That also equates to the land being at an all-time high, you know, being the most sought after vineyards on the planet. LVMH in 2014 purchased Domaine uh, Claude de Lambre for around 101 million euros, which equates to about 11.6 million euros per hectare, which is a pretty crazy price point per hectare. In order to justify these kind of numbers, buyers need to believe that either the land is going to keep appreciating value or that the, they can keep charging more for these wines over time. Which do you think is a 
main driver of buying land at those prices? Is it more about the land appreciating over time or that the wine still has a lot of room to grow in terms of pricing? Well, I think you have to think about who's buying, you know, and in this case, you're talking about a big multinational corporation that is never going to die. And so they put the money there and it's money that they're not being taxed on because it's an investment. And it's the same. You look in that Napa Valley, you have a lot of people who have a successful first business, very successful first business. They buy a winery in Napa Valley and it makes a loss and they deduct it from their taxes. And so they, and they have wine lifestyle for free because it's tax deductible. You know, so it's, I mean, they'll either be paying the money in taxes or they have a winery in Napa. So it's kind of a no brainer. And I think you're going to see the same, assuming similar incentives. And so far the incentives are similar. You're going to see the same sorts of things playing out in France in that either you have the money in the bank account getting taxed or you do something else with it or you, you know, you buy something that at least has some sort of non-fungible value, you know? So I think it's a mistake to, you know, think about it. Are people looking for it to appreciate the land, the land to appreciate or to be able to charge the, more for the wine? Now, of course, LVMH have doubled the price of Claude Lombre, and people will, you know, land prices continue to escalate because there are many, many, many very rich people in the world, and the surface of Burgundy is finite. So I wouldn't be too concerned from their point of view as an investment either. But don't underestimate people's desire just to find somewhere to park money where it's not going to lose value or be taxed. But do you think there's a direct correlation between the land price and the price of the wine, or are those unrelated in your mind? Oh, no. No, they're totally disconnected. I mean, historically, it was considered, if you look at all the 19th century literature, it was considered that you ought to be able to pay for the vineyard with three years' production. So, you know, we're very far from, at Bon Mar, at 35 million a hectare, we're very far from that kind of dynamic, even with very expensive wines. So do you think there's a limit or cap to what people pay for top vineyard sites? Well, I don't see any signs of that, either for vineyards or for wines. The real disincentive, you can make yourself extremely unpopular by buying a vineyard for a huge sum of money in Burgundy because you increase the assessment value of the land, which increases everybody's death duties and taxes. So, you know, you should really be careful. If you want to become a functioning member of the community, you should be careful. But the trend is clearly up, and we touched also regarding the price of the Dauvinet and Gauté, just as one example. You can countless examples, but in the sort of think of the number, double it, and then add 50% territory for making up prices for wine. And and it's crazy. And I mean, I know the ex-domain prices, a lot of these wines that are being traded for these insane sums of money, and there's nothing that they've got up a bit, yes. But, I mean, <laughs> there's no link, you know, we're not talking about percentage margins, we're talking about invented numbers for the prices of these wines. Something like a famous producer of Chablis is Le Clos, let's say. You say a magnum of that uh, from the domain is 80 euros or so, give or take. Wow. And then it's two and a half thousand in the US? Come on. So a lot of people are making a lot of money, a lot of people are very happy, and people are there ready to buy the wines. And, and I don't know, I don't see, I mean, aside from some sort of cataclysmic global event, which will give us a lot more to think about than Burgundy prices, my advice to friends and acquaintances and our readers is to, there's no end in sight to this. But now and in three years, it'll be twice as expensive, three, you know, and you'll be very happy. And then this applies beyond, this is a fine wine phenomenon. This is not just a big phenomenon. Look at Rayas, even, you know, stocks of older Bordeaux in the market are beginning to get sort of eaten up a little bit. A lot of people are buying a lot of wine at the moment. So do you think there's a cap for wine prices though? I mean, talking about the, obviously you don't see any site for lands. No, I mean, we're talking about small quantities as well. You don't need many transactions. You know, you don't need, huge velocity to drive up the price of Dauvinet when you're talking about 20,000 cases of defeat. Yes, maybe not so much when it's like one barrel of this or half a barrel of that. I mean, this is a, you just need two or three people. 
And still, even in these crazy, insane prices, you compare the price of top burgundy with collectible watches, collectible cars, collectible impressionist paintings, whatever. And, and, and it's relatively, it's, obviously, it's a collectible that's also comestible. You drink it and then it's gone. But it is nonetheless, I think, in terms of its value, to get back to that point about it being a cultural signifier, it's still incredibly underpriced. You know, you can have a wine collection that will impress anybody in the world for a couple of million, Well, you can't have a collection of cars that will impress anyone. Wow. You know, who anyone else who collects cars. So this is the sort of territory that we're in. And it's not a world I particularly inhabit, but I'm aware of its existence, and, and it is the defining force in the marketplace for these wines and a lot of others at the moment. I'm curious on how global climate change impacts some of the perceived value of these lands. Obviously, you've had winter frost and hail that have you know, decimated some holdings for some producers over the last few years. And it seems to be more and more common in terms of reducing yields and the wine that can actually be output. So how do people factor that in in terms of what they're getting? Obviously, they're taking a, a longer perspective that they're buying an asset like a piece of land. But I think we get a little, we hear people obviously having a very bad time and they're very sad about having lost their crop and whatnot. And we, and we lose perhaps a little bit of perspective in the sense, you know, you look at Jules Laval in 1860, will tell you that the average yield of the top sites of the Côte d'Or was 15 hectolitres per hectare. And I tell you that plenty of people who were frosted this year will make fully 15 hectolitres per hectare. And plenty will make a lot more than that. You know, these days, I think a lot of good, very good estates are pitching for 35 hectolitres per hectare, which is more than twice what they were getting in the 19th century. Again, you know, if you want to go back and look at sort of cataclysmic frost, you can find a lot of them. In the recent history of Burgundy, same with hail. We haven't, we haven't touched wood, had the sort of devastating hail we had in 14, 13, and 12, in the Côte de Bonne especially. You know, so I think the picture is pretty rosy. Now the question is, are the grapes going to be as tasty and make us tasty wines? I'm very convinced personally that uh, a lot can be done in terms of canopy management. Higher canopy is not just trimming and hedging the vines very low and cultivating the soils six, seven times a year, more letting a bit of cover crop grow, you know, just not letting it getting invaded by weeds. But you can do a lot of things. You can keep the temperature of the soil 10 degrees centigrade cooler on a hot day. You can increase the soil's water retaining capacity immensely. You can decrease the temperature of the fruit in the fruiting zone. You can get a level of phenolic brightness sooner in the year so you can pick earlier. You know, there's an awful lot that can be done. And if you look at the price values in price increases in Burgundy, the value of the wine over the last 15 years, they absolutely more than efface any kind of diminution in volume produced. Because you're talking about people who could not even what we consider top domains in the Cote de you could go and buy direct as a just turn up, knock on the door, you have a tasting in the year 2000. Now you try doing that today, that would be an interesting experience. <laughs> <laughs> and you put in your order for magnums, you know. <laughs> no, I would only like Grand Cru and only in Magnum, please. Because, you know, that's all I drink. So good luck. So really, I mean, I, no, I think, I think it's an exciting time in the sense that the wines sell for so much money and there's such an appetite for them that there's nothing holding people back from doing whatever it takes in the vineyards or in the cellar. If someone wants to do three years élevage, if they want to reduce their yields to 10 hectolitres per hectare, whatever, all of this, the market will support it. Well, the consumer will follow you every step of the way. So what an opportunity for producers in Burgundy. You know, spoiled children. We can do, I say we because I make a tiny bit of wine in Burgundy, but uh, <laughs> without wishing to be pretentious. But no, I mean, there's no excuse for anything other than excellence. That plays into a couple of trends that we've seen in the Burgundy space where the established who are making a lot more money than they used to are getting bigger and new entrants are really only to come in and play as like micro negotiants or virtual wineries where they're buying fruit from others. So with land so expensive is the only way to play 
is being a virtual or a micro negotiant. Could you help us understand the economics of doing that in Burgundy? Is it, I presume that's what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, you know, so the fruit is definitely expensive. So you're talking, you know, three, four, five thousand euros per barrel for um, village wine. So, and offer Nuit Premier Cru. <laughs> Which is priced like village one in the Cote de Nuit. And then, you know, things like Beaujolais are much cheaper. So, you know, the barrel of, to make a barrel of Chirubla would cost you much more like 550, 600 euros. So there's a big, you know, Burgundy fruit is very expensive. But no, I mean, I think it's interesting what we're going to see. We're seeing all these domains change hands, all vineyards change hands, generations change. There are a lot of taxes to pay, a lot of shareholders, a lot of people owning land. There's a lot more going on under the surface than you see when you just look at the labels. And it really wouldn't surprise me to see some of the sort of current micro-negotiant people my age. They get the attention of investors or somebody who owns a, a hectare of something interesting. And they say, well, why don't you have the fermage? And suddenly what was a negotiant becomes domain. So I think that's sort of the transition that I would expect to see a little bit more. I think we're entering into a period where, I don't know, either Burgundy sort of completely ossifies and becomes just sort of brand and label driven, which would be a pity, or um, this sort of, this diversification of land ownership beyond established families has the upside of at least creating opportunities from outside to do things, which I don't think is inconceivable. But no, it's, it's expensive and it's more expensive to produce negotiate wine than to produce domain wine. If you have an amortized ownership of land without thinking of inheritance tax to pay, of course, it's much less expensive to farm it than it is to buy fruit from it because there's somebody buying fruit. So that's, you know, that's a paradox. And in that negotiant model, especially with the risks around climate and yield that we discussed earlier, is it the grower or the negotiant that takes on the risk of the yield? Oh, I mean, you have a contract, you buy a fruit by the, in Burgundy by the PS, by the barrel. So if they don't have the fruit, you're not, you're, you know, you don't, you're not paying in a classic arrangement. So no, so the grower is the one exposed. Equally, I would say it's a seller's market in that you take it or leave it and someone else will take it if you leave it. So if you want to pick it five days later, well, you better have a very good relationship with your grower. If you only want the top part of the parcel, again, you better have a very good relationship with your grower and one of mutual respect because there's no real economic incentive to compel them to gratify your preferences. So that's tricky. And frankly, especially for outsiders, it's not easy to get good fruit. If you're not immersed in the milieu of Burgundy, it's not easy. And, and you see a tendency for people perhaps to get fruit that is not the best fruit that you can get in order to be able to produce a particular appellation. So if you want to make Sham Chambertin, well, there's somebody who can sell you Sham Chambertin, but just won't be very good, you know, and, and, and so on. So that's an issue. That's an issue. I, I think that the the interesting opportunities, unless you're sort of super plugged in, are more likely to, you can buy very good, good in Village. You know, you can buy some exceptional fruit. You can buy some very interesting things, but you can't. As a model, it's one where it's very hard to sort of, you know, come in and you be the Vintler and you make the Grand Cru. Well, no, that's, you're going to be very lucky to get very good Grand Cru fruit. But you can get very interesting things. You can make very nice wines. So if you're a young winemaker and you're starting off as a negotiant and say you're starting to build a reputation for yourself, how do those negotiants grow? I mean, especially if they don't have family ties to help give them access to fruit, how do they get a chance to make, you know, move up the actual value chain of in Burgundy from, you know, village to Premier Cru or even a Grand Cru? Is that, it seems like there's a huge hurdle to overcome there. Yeah, I mean, I think the flip side, you could reverse it. You can say that they have a lot of work ahead of them to validate 
lower appellations and to demonstrate that extremely high quality wines can be produced. Look, someone like Arnaud Ornd, he obviously is not a negotiant, but look what he did with Chef Duclos from Ornd uh, Ormeau is very far down the hierarchy of the interesting sites in Merceau. And he produced one of the most expensive wines in Merceau, Premier Cru included from this sort of, you know, it's mud. Uh, but I'm sure there are some very interesting stones underneath and all of that, but it's very flat and it's very, it's very, it's towards the bottom, let's say, you know, without, again, without wishing to, to, to be um, indiscreet. And that's one of the top wines of the village. And that's through work, ultimately. And so I think the same can be done. That there are a lot of very good places to make wine in Burgundy that are not highly classified. And that's something that I'm very optimistic for the future to see. And especially, you know, well, climate is changing. Yes. And also these sites have changed over the years. There's been erosion. And then the, again, go back 100 years, people would regularly bring in soil from outside to put back on the vineyards to compensate for what had, had eroded away. And that hasn't happened since the AAC system because it's pretty much outlawed. So the vineyards that exist today are not the same as the vineyards that were classified. So the other kind of term that was largely used by many producers was that domain versus Maison wines, you know, essentially calling out these are the wines that I, that we as our estate are farming and making, and these are the ones where we're buying in fruit. It seems like that line has blurred dramatically for many producers, especially some even top producers where you can't really tell if this is domain or Maison wine and they just you know, disregard that. What's the current thinking around those terms? And are there people that are leaning towards one or the other versus blurring that lines? Yeah, I think a lot of consumers still set a lot of store by it. And, you know, I mean, I saw somebody on the internet recently who's getting extraordinarily exercised because I Jadot make a Clos Saint-Denis that's Domaine and one that's Négociant. And it's labeled. One that says Domaine and the other says Négociant, but you have to read the label. And he was immensely affronted by this and sort of took it as an intent to mislead, which I don't you know, I don't think it is. If it's written clearly on the front label at that stage, it's incumbent upon the consumer to read a little bit. In terms of producers, I mean, I think that, yeah, some people will clearly distinguish them, thinking that one is better than the other, and, and, and often it is. Others will try to blur the distinction and sell the ghost wine off the back of the domain wine's pedigree, and it's almost like a tax, and you, you, you get your allocation, and it includes 30% of the negos wine you don't really want, but well, if you decline it, you're not going to get the rest, are you? So uh, <laughs> some people start to do this with Ospice to Bone wines as well, where you're sort of obliged to buy Ospice to Bone wines. There's all a sort of way of taxing people or increasing the real price of the domain wines without actually increasing it. But then you have people who clearly really believe in what they're doing. I mean, you have look at someone like Pierre Collin, PYCM label, started out as a negotiation project, and rolled in family domain vineyards acquired later, all of which are sold to the negotiation structures. Everything comes out of the negotiation structure. It's all under the same label. And that domain is claimed nowhere on the label, which is now what Koshkiri is doing. And the I think the very clear message that that sends is they consider all of this stuff to be fit to bear their label and that they're not going to buy fruit, which is inferior to the fruit that they'd grow themselves, which I think is a very respectable point of view to make. You know, And I think for the most part, Someone like PYCM, there are some cuvées I like more than others. Is that to do with the farming? I think it's perceivably more to do with the site and the vine age and things like that. I mean, I think they're, they're very serious. But yes, it's, it's clearly blurring. The boundaries are clearly blurring. And that goes back to the fact that the boundaries of who owns the land are also blurring under the surface. And you'll find that sometimes some of these famous domains, 20, 30% of the, the vineyards are owned by investors. And you have no idea from looking at the label, that's not written anywhere. All of this stuff is going to be continue to be blurred and muddled in the years to come. Building on that point, a lot of the top producers like Akosh, their Bourgogne-level wines or village wines are going for the same prices as you know, Grand Cru or from other producers, often bigger producers. How much is the winemaker or the winemaking 
relevant for pricing versus the land itself or you know the qualification, the ground crew status and all that? I believe it's decisive for the quality of the wine and the quality of the wine is decisive for the price. And I take reassurance. I mean, I regard myself as being a critic who's prepared to depart from the established hierarchy of appellations and score wines according to how they taste rather than what it says on the label. I hope. That's certainly my aspiration. And I take encouragement from the fact that the market agrees with me. Because uh, it does, you know, you have Aligoté that's more expensive than Grand Cru Prudigny. And, but this is the world that's revealed when you blind taste. And uh, a Coche Rougeau is much better than most Montrachet. And that's how it is. So, I, I mean, I try to score, I try to taste the wines with all the benefit of the context provided from visiting the producer multiple times a year and knowing the wines throughout their evolution over the years. But then I try to score them the way I would if I encountered them in a blind tasting. And yeah, I mean... Clearly, I think the market gets that. You're going to see more and more of that. You're going to see very expensive Centenaire. You're going to see expensive wines from the Cochellanaires. Will bad Pouligny ever be cheap? Probably not, but it ought to be. (laughs) 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 I don't think we'll ever see that. Even the top names are getting bigger. You have DRC expanding into Courtois Charlemagne, La Flave, making wines in Macon. What drives these trends? Is this to... You know, leverage their brand or what? What is? Yeah, I mean, I think if you go to business school, you know that if you have a good brand, you should capitalize. Huh? So uh, I'm sure perhaps the, the illustrious names that you mentioned just now wouldn't portray it like that, but they all have shareholders and they are businesses. And then the brand can't be diluted because of the hierarchy. So you could make a ton of insipid Macon, and then if you've got Maraschet, it doesn't really impact the Maraschet, does it? No, I'm not remotely suggesting that's what LeFlow's been doing over the last 10 years, but you could. So that, that you're insulated, the appellation, in a way that you're not insulated in Bordeaux, let it be said also, because if in Bordeaux, if Latour releases some sort of totally atrocious Ford de Latour or Poyac de Latour, that does impact on the brand, doesn't it? In a way that it really doesn't. You know, you could make a terrible... Domain X can make a terrible negociant wine, village wine, and sell it for far more than it's worth. And as long as the Moussinier is good, it doesn't matter. And people will still buy it because it will have the same label. And you see, I mean, you also see a lot of people who get very confused whether it's Maison or Domaine Loire. So I think it goes to show, doesn't it? Yeah, it's interesting to say that the Appalachian system protects against the dilution of the brand because of that. So looking ahead to the future of Burgundy, where does it go from here? You mentioned many different techniques that people can do to do more precision farming of their vineyards to reduce the impacts of climate change. Are there a couple key ones that are really helping with yields and getting quality up in Burgundy or that will be in the future? No, I think that those that I mentioned, honestly, there's a huge amount of stuff that can be done. There's also a lot can be done in terms of planting high quality vine genetics in less celebrated sites. And uh, I think there's everything to play for. I would like to see every site in Burgundy farm like a Grand Cru, you know, because with the hierarchy of Burgundy, uh, everyone treats it like it's, uh, what was Matt Kramer's phrase, it's a world of born, not a world of made, which is one of the silliest things that has been said about Burgundy in the last hundred years. Uh, of course it's made, you know, and I, I think you know, being there on the ground and making wine, one sees that the hierarchy is as much reinforced as it is revealed. Certainly some sites are better than others, but if the worst sites were treated like the best, well, then we would really see how much better the best sites are. And until every wine is made with equal care and attention, and we see producers who do that, and the results speak for themselves. So so there's not some sort of aberrant fantasy of mine. The wines exist that demonstrate that this is possible. I would like to see, yeah, more more of these sort of lower level 
sites farmed at the highest possible level with the best biogenetics. And then we'll see, you know, and then we can really talk about terroir because, you know, I, I still, in this line of work, I still meet plenty of people who sort of will find a reason why the Grand Cru should always be better and will always make excuses for the Grand Cru. And I find it very fatiguing. I would like to see, as I say, a Burgundy where everything's to play for and no glass ceilings are imposed on any appellation. And suddenly, I think you'll start to see a lot more high-quality Burgundy made at every level of the pyramid. So speaking about winemaking, I'm curious, and what do you think were some trends that you're seeing that are starting now or over the last few years that will continue to in the future? Well, I mean, I think the big story of the last sort of five to 10 years is people extracting less and less. And there are people also who think flirting with sort of some of the ideas of the natural wine movement, which is to say, you know, very low sulfur, carbonic maceration. And if you take, again, a step back, there were people in the 18th century were doing 36-hour macerations. So it was only really in the mid-19th century that we started to get very this sort of more extracted, age-worthy, structured, serious wines. Now I happen to find wines that have the capacity to age for a long time and, and acquire all sorts of additional nuance and complexity and refined texturally over time also. Very interesting. So I don't want to come out and say that I'm opposed to these sort of more culpable, immediate, light fruit-driven visions of red burgundy. But they're not personally what interests me particularly. I mean, I can find plenty of pleasure in them. But I'm very interested in wines that have enduring value over time, wines that have some sort of cultural value, if one can say that without, again, being pretentious. But I think, yeah, so I think a clear trend today is to make lighter, more approachable, softer red burgundy that you can drink young, and this tallies with people not having cellars and wanting to try the wines young. So uh, it's not particularly surprising. I, I think maybe the trend is worse for white wine, because I think, you know, white burgundy that's made just to be sort of upfront has very little interest, and there are a lot of wines that do that better. So I would like to see, I would really, I think there's a real dearth of people aspiring to make very long-lived white burgundy. And I think a lot of things were, a lot of concepts behind how to do that were lost. People sometimes think of burgundy as being relatively insular, but in fact, it was a wholesale adaptation of new world pressing and winemaking techniques in the 1990s that's significantly responsible for this sort of current dearth of aspirational white burgundy, if you can call it that. I mean, I, anyone who's drunk, I think, as like 30, 40-year-old Masseau from a top producer uh, gets this or whatever, I mean, they're, but there are not many people doing that today. That sort of seems like a real, that's a worry and a concern. There are more people making great red wine than making great white wine today. But there's a lot of delicious white wine, don't get me wrong, you know, so it's hard to find fault with it. But if you've drunk your old white, your the Fleur 79s or your Kosh 1996s, you know, yeah, that you are often left wanting more from the sort of soft and sloppy. And, and everyone says it's reductive. I don't know. I think it's just sort of nutty oak for the most part. That's one of my bet noir at the moment is hearing people talk about wines as being reductive when they're not actually particularly reductive at all. If it's California, it's oaky. If it's Burgundian, it's reductive. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Everything's distilled down. It was happened to me with one of my vintages of Chenin Blanc. Somebody was telling me of a lovely reduction. And it wasn't even particularly oaky, but it was two, three-year-old, four-year-old barrels, which had a slight sort of hazelnut patina to the wine. I I liked it, but it wasn't reduction. Uh, I know exactly about my wine's redox chemistry because I made it. But it was extremely amusing to see. And I, I, you know, and, I, and so that was really what gave me a window into that whole sort of phenomenon. And now almost every tasting that I see on Instagram says this is you know, a bit of Kosh reduction or something. Kosh think the last reduced wine they made was 2007. So I don't know. Maybe they're wrong. <laughs> Reductive's the new mineral. <laughs> no, no, mineral mineralité was an E acute. Huh? Oh, shoot me now. <laughs> Lobotomized so, before reading. 
So I am curious on Elevage. This is something you touched on a little bit earlier. So, you know, you talked about pressing cycles changing for white wines oh, in general and extraction. But I'm curious on Elevage and, uh, you know, historically, I, I think of people getting the new vintage in and only having so much cellar space. Is that something with the investment in Burgundy that's happened that, you know, people have started to explore longer Elevage? Well, I, that's also really touch a historical nerve there because the tradition, if you go back 200 years, was for two or three years Elevage because it was the only way to clarify the wine. And then you have, in, in the interim, the morselation of estates. A lot of people with such small sellers, peasants, not much of wine culture, producing wine and selling it to negotiants originally who would take care of all of that. And then they start bottling it themselves. And yes, they have small sellers and they do just one year's elevage. They bottle it before the next vintage to make space and they filter it. But the tradition, the deeper tradition is longer elevage and it's simply pragmatically from the view of clarifying it. If you don't have a filter, obviously you can do some findings, but you can't. You know, if you want your wine to be stable in terms of proteins, malolactic, whatever, you better leave it for 18 to 24 months in the barrel. I mean, that's what barrels are for, right? Uh, the oak tannins deal with the protein issues and, and it, yeah, it all, the problems solve themselves. So today, yeah, today there's a, the people are definitely moving towards doing longer elevage, which I think is interesting. There's still plenty of people who just do it a year, but I think the majority of people who are moving towards that are just doing the second year or parts of the second year in tank. And so they do 12 years in 12 months rather in wood. And then they, they empty the barrels just before the next harvest that we have clean barrels. So in a sense, if you want to do LMR in wood, the unit is you're either going to do 12 or 24 months because you don't really want to have the barrels empty. You can, you can burn sulfur in them or gas them and you can do various things. But if you really want to keep them super squeaky clean, you empty them the day before you fill them. You know, that's perfect. And so, so no, but you're seeing more people doing that. I think it brings a lot. I mean, I'm quite a believer in long elevage. I think you lose. Also, in, in a humid cellar, osmotic pressure, you lose alcohol. You concentrate flavors and you lose alcohol and what's not the like. I would love to drink more intensely flavored wines with less alcohol in them. I mean, that would be the win-win. <laughs> so, I mean, we're doing, I'm doing, I think, 26 months for the 2019 Chambord Missionier. And I think we'll have lost half a percent or maybe slightly more than half a percent of alcohol. And in a sense, it brings the wine back into balance. And you see, this is what the Elevage of Cognac and Armagnac is all about. You start with a very high-proof spirit and you... The idea is to time or manipulate the ambience of the cellar, which often is just determined by chance, such that you get the sorts of flavors you want when the spirit reaches around 41 to 42% alcohol. But it starts out much higher and you lose alcohol through osmotic pressure. So if you, the same osmosis applies to wine just like it applies to, to spirits. So that's interesting. A lot of interesting stuff happens in Long Elevage. I'm a big believer in it. I mean, you look, the Menoc First Growth used to have five years. And did this result in dried out wines that don't taste fruity? Well, you open 1921 uh, Montrose today, not even a First Growth, and it's still plenty fruity. You know? So I've even found we, some people in Burgundy have done experiments with producer I know in Chevrolet, did an extra year. And the wine uh, on that one of their 2002 Chevrolet Village, and the wine that had the extra year tastes younger and fruitier today than that that didn't, because it was more stable when it went into the bottle. Hmm. So yeah, so that's that's interesting. On lees, um, I don't know. I mean, I think the red wine and lees has been that was sort of an exaggerate. That's been a bit exaggerated. It can make the wines a bit lactic and a bit. I don't know. I'm not sure about that. Definitely for white wines, but for red wines, you've got a lot of things going on between the wood and the wine. And yet yeah, the atmosphere that are interesting, irrespective of any kind of stuff you might pick up from the lees. I tend to think that if you age red wines on excessive amount of lees, you can fatten up the mid palates in a way that then sort of implode after a bit of bottle age. And there's certainly some border where people were playing with lees stirring and red wines that did that. But it may be other factors too, so it's hard to say. 
But you know, a lot, everyone, all the historic literature is get the red wine off its lees and then keep on getting it off its lees, you know. And partly that was a sanitation concern to do with problems, wanting to avoid problems. But maybe the guys weren't completely idiotic either. Maybe there was something in it. It's a point of view worth entertaining. So you mentioned earlier that you think the price of Burgundy is just going to continue to escalate. Do you think that that escalation will start to impact other regions nearby, maybe like the Northern Rhone or other Pinot Noirs around the world that have some demand? I don't know. I, I don't think hugely because it's people are chasing Burgundy and that, again, it comes back to the, our whole premise is that there's no substitute, except no substitute. It's the terroir, so, so there you go. And, and it has to be said that there are not many wines from outside of Burgundy, whether made from Pinot Noir or other grapes, that do much of the stuff that Burgundy does or has historically done. I would expect that there will be some other regions that will take off a little bit. I mean, I think there's, I think Bordeaux is going to get more expensive than it is currently, actually, especially for back vintages, as people begin to realize that they're actually quite tasty to drink now. Some of the, even 05s. We drank an 05 Montrose recently. It was really good. I bought three cases, so it was, it was really good. And then look, I mean, there are other places I think you're going to see, especially if in Burgundy, some sort of diversification does happen. People accept that you can produce good wines, very good wines, in less famous sites. You're going to see stuff happening in Savoie or people paying attention to stuff happening in Savoie. I've got a bottle of Ardoisier open right now. For stuff happening in the Loire. You know, that people are going to look further afield. Yes, yes. But, you know, all roads lead to Burgundy. I don't Maybe I mean this. Maybe I'm having this sort of conversation with you now that some a Bordeaux critic might have had with you in 1982 about Bordeaux. That I don't foresee in my near future any sort of fundamental change to the sort of geopolitics of wine. People are not going to sort of migrate from Latache to Bezetto anytime soon. So Burgundy historically has been notoriously insular, not wanting outsiders in the region. Do you see that this is changing or will be changing over time? Oh yeah, I mean I think you a new generation of producers. Outside of COVID, they're in New York, they're in Macau, they're in Shanghai, Hong Kong. No, no. I mean, look, I think the sheer amount of money required to hold together a multi-generational enterprise in Burgundy these days with land prices as they are and inheritance taxes as they are necessitates being acquainted with wealthy people. So no, I think it's not at all insular these days. And well, it's maybe a little insular in terms of range of reference of, of wine tasting. But that's, I'm not saying that, you know, everyone in Burgundy needs to taste lots of New Zealand Pinot Noir, whatever. I would like more Burgundians to taste more great Burgundy. That's something. And I see the same problem a fortiori in Champagne, incidentally, because wine is a cultural product as well as an agronomic product. And you have to have a sophisticated wine culture where you understand what excellence in wine is by having drunk it in order to be able to produce it unless you're just some sort of naturally talented idiot savant you know who just happened to inherit the great recipe and there are examples of that which is wonderful but i think you know look at people like klaus better keller in the Rheinhessen. you know he's somebody who's drunk all of the world's great wines and has an immense amount of clarity about what he's trying to achieve. And that shows in his wines, in my view. And I think the same is absolutely, that's a really important thing. I mean, if I had any piece of advice to my generation of Burgundian producers, it would be to get out there and, and taste really good stuff and, and old stuff, which by which I mean not decrepit, but I just mean really good benchmark wines. And you can still find perfectly preserved 1934s and 1937s and, and taste them and have some context for what you're doing. You know, the deepest possible context will make the most polyvalent 
interesting wines. And I think it also sort of liberates you from fashion, the deeper the context you have. If you can set the sort of current trend for glue-glue carbonic wines in a context going back 200 years, then you can think where you might want to situate yourself. It's not just, oh, well, that's selling really well down the street. Maybe we should all, oh, yeah, we don't do any punch downs. We just extract gently. We infuse. Those sort of things, that, that's very tiresome. And, and if you have a real frame of reference for greatness over time in the wine world, I think you kind of, you develop a bit of a bullshit filter for such things in a way that you know, maybe is lacking sometimes. So you mentioned some changing of the guard in the many domains have recently had a generational shift or they've passed down to the next generation. I'm curious, in your opinion, is that usually for the better? And how should collectors perceive or understand the impact of a change in leadership at a domain? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to take it in a case-by-case way. It's always portrayed as an, an unmitigated good because they're going to come along and they're going to make much better wine. And I hear, you know, I can always already imagine if my daughter has any interest in taking over my uh, wine project, it's like, oh, well, you know, Kelly's wines are a bit too extracted, really. And now she's just making them much more finessed and, you know, the feminine touch, of course. Well, I, we've heard that sort of thing lately, but maybe people start to say that a bit less in the wine world these days. But you can imagine, you know, you can imagine exactly the narrative, but the reality is it's, com- it's much more complex than that. And not, talent is not necessarily hereditary and certainly passion isn't. There are also a hell of a lot of pressures under, imagine if you're 23 and you take over this sort of internationally famous domain where the wines cost thousands of dollars per bottle. And what's your aesthetic vision? You're 23. Do you have an aesthetic vision? What's your, what are you, you know, gosh, I mean, that's a hell of a thing. I almost pity some people who, I mean, it's fantastic to get to play with those grapes and what a delight and what a responsibility there, you know, and there's a hell of a lot of pressure. Not many people I don't think necessarily can handle that. So I think the tendency would probably just to generalize, and there will be many exceptions to this, and there are going to be some brilliant young winemakers, but the tendency would be to make more conservative, less personal wines and rely on the advice of a consultant technologist in order to protect the investment and assets of all the shareholders to whom you are responsible. That just from an economic point of view and a historical point of view is what you'd expect to see. You know, so lots of clean wines that taste nice and fruity and, you know, and there you go. So I always wonder how, uh, how siblings of a famous domain handle the split because everybody has their different. I can just imagine my two kids eventually taking over something. I, I know that they would have completely different opinions even at a very young age. <laughs> so I'm curious on how siblings of a famous domain like deal with the division of labor or viewpoint for the domain. I think it's very complicated. I mean, I can think of two domains where brothers who split under less than amicable circumstances and uh, they're next door. So of course, when I do my tastings, they're back. I do one after the other. And I would have to sort of go away and pretend that I was leaving and, and then sort of sneak back to go to, to go to visit the other one, even though I'm allowed to do that. But I know there are some people, they won't sell wines to if they're friends with the brother and so on. So no, it's, uh, as I say, I feel immensely lucky not to have to navigate any of those dynamics, family dynamics. And imagine the pressure. I mean, when you introduce such large sums of money into any kind of relationship, family or otherwise, it can often create tensions that one couldn't have imagined emerging. So uh, yeah, I, I, you know, and the sort of family culture of Burgundy is one of the things that makes it special. So having been very optimistic about a lot of aspects, uh, if one can end on a slightly nostalgic note, it would be to say that it's, it's, you know, it'll be a pity to see the loss of that sort of culture, which made very personal and very individual wines, which were not always good, but had the merit of being characterful. So how do you see some of the top producers continuing to evolve? Do you think they're going to continue to expand their vineyard portfolios? Or maybe we've seen some invest and acquire different brands like within the region or globally, like Favely buying William Selliam. What do you see happening in the future? 
well, everyone wants to buy as much land as they can, but I don't know. I think it really depends on how, you know, someone like Erwin Fevelet or, or um, Etienne Dumonti, they're people with very sort of, you know, global vision and it makes sense for them to have Californian projects as they do. There are plenty of people in Burgundy Group that wouldn't be a good fit. And so I don't, yeah, I don't see a sort of rash of that going on all over the world. Yeah, I think the Lalu uh, has, has shown everyone that there is no ceiling to prices in Burgundy and you can, if you make, better what you have, you can charge more for it, more than you could make by making more of something else, you know? And I hope people see that. In a sense, I mean, if everybody took that message to heart and really did the best they have with what they, the best they can with what they have, I think there'd be a lot, a lot of very interesting wines that we, and for a lot of even places that we don't know can produce exciting wine in Burgundy, would be producing very exciting wine. Awesome. Thank you again for joining us. For a wrap-up question, I want to know, we want to know, what are you most excited about or Burgundy in the coming year? Well, I'm really excited to see this sort of continuing viticultural revolution and how effectively it can adapt to climate change, how climate change will play out also, because this year we have a late harvest. Huh? People will be harvesting into October this year of marginally ripe fruit. People will be chaptalizing. So it's not all hot, dry vintages. The frost, I mean, there are a lot of, there are, climate change is not just global warming, and, and that's obviously something that we've all learned about. And I think hopefully we've also learned not to confuse climate and weather and to have a hot year and think, well, this is the climate changing. Well, it's not what climate change was, it's not what a trend is. A trend doesn't create hot weather. So, yeah, I mean, I'm very excited. I think we're, we're on the sort of cusp at the beginning of a, a viticultural revolution, such as we haven't really seen since the after, immediate aftermath of Phylloxerone, where everything is being put back in question and people have the resources to do whatever they want. And we can see experimentation and certainly some failure and some success as well, I, clearly already. And, you know, I, I, I would love to see wines of sort of intensity of flavor and authority of some of the great wines of the past being made, and especially in lesser sites which is something I've touched on before in this interview, obviously, so I don't want to repeat myself too much. But, you know, if you can drink a 1926 Bourgogne Pasteur Grand, it's fantastic today. And plenty of fruit, huh? not remotely senile, at what concentration and depth and weight, wines like that. Well, let's have more of that, please. You know, and maybe that takes having very high canopies and 15 hectoliters per hectare instead of 50. But why not? People will pay for it. People will pay for excellence. Awesome. So, so what an opportunity for a region. So, yeah, I mean, it sounds like the people have gotten the message in terms of climate change in Burgundy. And, and again, disassociating that from warmth necessarily, but in terms of making sure that they're getting things. So, you know, super excited to hear. And do you think that this is something that is widely adapted already or people are already figuring out or is it just a handful of producers are experimenting? Oh, no, no, no. We're talking about a handful, but three years ago it was one or two. So we're now we're talking about dozens of people doing things. So no, no, we can just get interesting. Every year, it seems like a lot more is going on. So, yeah, I'm very excited. Great. Well, thank you for joining us again. It was great to have you and learn so much about the past, present, and future of Burgundy. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. cheers.